Hello, everyone. I'm Paul Menzel. And I'm Jim Conlon. And this is New Tricks for Old Dogs. Our podcast features the many ways us older folks howl at the moon, odd news items you don't normally hear about, and conversations with other old dogs who are growing bolder, not older. So if you've got 25 minutes or so, grab a cup of coffee, pull up a chair, and join us. In this episode, the old dogs ramble about the chances of being replaced by a robot. We acquaint you with a new gadget from Amazon that connects your glasses to the Internet. We explain how you can trade a hairpin... For a house, we comment on a new film whose star looks human but isn't, and we celebrate the life of screen legend Olivia de Havilland. The old dog's conversation is with Susan Alexander, whose search for a real job led her to degrees in English, business, law, and who knows what else. Stay with us. Paul, you, what's on your mind? Well, we have a pod nugget in uh, this episode about a robot, an android actually, mm-hmm. a human-looking robot yes. that was cast as the lead in a film. Right. And uh, I, I got to say, that's getting kind of scary. Um, Jim, we could be replaced, <laughs> you and I. They've had robots in manufacturing for a long time, but sure. they, aren't, they don't look human. Mm-hmm. They are usually designed to do a specific task in a manufacturing process. Yeah. Well, that seems but, to be different, right? Oh, yeah. They designed this robot to look as human as possible. Mm-hmm. And because of artificial intelligence, the knowledge of this robot is cumulative. It's getting smarter. Whereas you and I are not getting smarter. We're, we're getting foggier. Um, mm-hmm. Does it bother you at all? Oh, yeah, quite a bit. Um Well, there's actually, there's two factors here. One is to mistake a robot for a real person uh, can be very scary uh, when you are interacting with someone you think uh, you can have a relationship with, and it turns out not to be the case. But the other thing is, uh, it hits closer to home, is you as an actor, me as a voice actor, we feel like we can be replaced. And it's certainly easier these days to replace a voice with an artificially intelligent voice Uh, than it is to replace a whole human, especially on stage. Uh, So I feel there is going to be more and more um, effort put into humanizing robots that can affect our perception of who is who. Yeah, yeah, and it isn't just in the arts. No. I mean, imagine if uh, you're in a complaint department of a department store and you're mm. dealing with a robot. Right. Now, usually when you're making your complaint, you can appeal to their humanity. Uh-huh. You know? <laughs> you cry a little. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the robotic response is going to be, no. <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, yeah. There's a lot of occupations where we assume could only be filled by humans. Mm. But if they, if robots start getting more and more intelligent, we are going to see robotic doctors, perhaps, or robotic uh, television personalities, uh, newscasters, mm-hmm. uh, or robotic y- you and I. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. And uh, I sort of wonder if my wife at that point will be able to tell the difference. Yeah, or want to buy a younger model. <laughs> Boy, we're going to get in big trouble for saying we, that. We are. We can't let our wives listen to this episode. <laughs> nope, that's not going to work. 
Are you ready for eyeglasses that are connected to the Internet? This pod nugget is from the Washington Post for August 4th, 2020. This latest intrusive consumer item is Echo Frames from Amazon, which features their virtual assistant Alexa. Unlike Google Glass, which had a visual component, Echo Frames are audio only. They have tiny speakers and a microphone, which allow for instructions from you to Alexa and nearly non-stop chatter back. Alexa voices all notifications from the apps in your cell phone, so you get announcements for Outlook activity, email, alerts, battery percentages, the weather, phone calls, and, uh, well, who knows what other apps you have on your phone. You can see how the interruptions would make it difficult to concentrate on anything more complex than chewing gum. If, after all that, you still want some Echo Frames, relax. You can't have them. Amazon is only selling them to a select group of customers who promise not to leave a product review on Amazon. (laughs) You see, the product is still in the development stage. So consider the downside before you put Echo Frames on your Christmas wish list. If you're having a conversation with a real person, anything spoken could trigger a response (laughs) from Alexa. So you have to stop your real conversation to give instructions to your virtual assistant and then apologize to the real person for talking to your glasses. Well, you see the problem. Yeah. And finally, Echo Frames connect with your phone through Bluetooth. So you have to carry your phone with you at all times. If that's the case, why not just use your phone without the glasses? I'm afraid this is just another product in search of a need. Yep. Alexa, this is Jim. Cancel the development of Echo Frames. Demi Skipper has an ambitious goal. Starting with a hairpin, she wants to keep trading with folks until she has swapped for a house. This item is from Sky News for July 25th, 2020. Ms. Skipper was inspired to start this challenge after watching a video of Kyle McDonald, who started with a paperclip and traded his way up to a house with 14 trades over a year ending in 2004. Here's how it's gone so far. She swapped the hairpin for earrings, the earrings for margarita glasses, the glasses for a vacuum, the vacuum for a snowboard, the snowboard for an iPhone 11, and the phone for a Dodge Ram van. And here's where she had a little setback. The minivan broke down as it was being driven across the country to be delivered. Not one to be deterred, she swapped the van for an electric skateboard, and the challenge goes on. Now a skeptic would say that she's being helped by family and friends, but under the rules of the challenge, she can't use cash or trade with anyone she knows. To keep the swap meet going, Miss Skipper sends out about a thousand messages a day using time before and after work. Some of the responses accuse her of being insane or worse. Hmm. Her reply, you have to be really resilient and you just have to know that you're doing a strange thing. (laughs) Strange it may be, but she has millions of followers on TikTok and Instagram. They can't all be crazy, can they? Well, no matter. Good luck to Jimmy Skipper in her quest to swap for a house. Her name is Erica, the star of an upcoming sci-fi film. Her acting is a bit mechanical, but that's understandable because Erica is a robot. This pod nugget is from the New York Times for July 24th, 2020. Now, characters in movies have been created digitally for years, but Erica is not animated. She is an android that uses artificial intelligence to act like a human. 
including body language and vocal inflection. She's projected to be the star of a multi-million dollar film currently in pre-production. Erika was created by Hiroshi Ishiguro, a roboticist at Osaka University in Japan. He modeled her after images of Miss Universe pageant finalists. He wanted to make the most human robot in existence, a robot that people would confide in and feel affection for. If you want to be critical, Erika is close, but no cigar. Her eyes are clearly plastic. Her synthesized voice sounds, well, synthesized. There is an audible whirring sound when she rises from a chair. (laughs) And when she walks, her air compressor-powered joints make her move either too fast or too slow. As a result, Erica will do most of her scenes sitting down. Meanwhile, Erica is taking acting lessons by emulating other actors. It took her months to grasp not just reciting a line, but speaking it softly or loudly, depending on the context. So now they teach her the dialogue for a scene in one session and then work on the emotions, character development, and body language in a subsequent session. Nobody is going to mistake Erica for a human, but artificial intelligence gets more intelligent every day. The day is not far off when real actors will be competing with androids for work. As an actor, I should probably think about another career to fall back on just in case. Like a robot repair person, maybe? You know, Paul, uh, when I get up out of a chair, I sound like an air compressor, too, don't I've you? I've heard it. Yeah. I've, it's, not, <laughs> it's not pretty. <laughs> Olivia de Havilland, the last remaining star of Gone with the Wind, died recently at the age of 104. She had an acclaimed career on camera, but her greatest legacy was a lawsuit against the powerful studio system. This podnucket is from the Washington Post for July 26, 2020. Olivia de Havilland started her film career as a young contract player for Warner Brothers in 1935. She was a love interest in a series of nine swashbuckling movies co-starring Errol Flynn. She was becoming a professional ingenue, but she had no choice. At that time, actors under long-term contracts had little say in what roles they were offered. In 1938, she auditioned for David O. Selznick, the independent producer who was casting Gone with the Wind. She wanted the role of Melanie, which she thought offered her a greater acting challenge than the role she was being offered by Warner Brothers. The problem was she was under contract to Warner Brothers, and Jack Warner, the head of the studio, refused to lend her out. Olivia de Havilland was a much more strong-willed person than her on-camera roles would indicate. She took Jack Warner's wife to tea and asked her for assistance in securing the role. The producer's wife was a former actress and understood Mr. Haviland's situation. She successfully persuaded her husband to agree to the lend-out. This inspired de Haviland to turn down some repetitive roles in the hopes of being offered more challenging parts. In return, the studio suspended her whenever she turned down a part. This was a common practice for studios at the time. They just added the suspended time to the length of the actor's contract. When de Havilland thought her contract was up, she was told by Warner Brothers that she owed them six more months, which was the total time of her suspensions. She sued successfully, and the 1945 landmark verdict became known as the de Havilland decision. It limited a seven-year contract to seven calendar years. The common practice of adding suspension time to a contract was no longer legal. 
This has been considered the beginning of the end of the studio contract system that controlled all aspects of an actor's life. The decision was hailed by the Screen Actors Guild as an historic contribution to the profession. You know, Jim, with that kind of determination, it's no wonder she lived to be 104. Oh, yeah. When you first meet Susan Alexander, you're struck right away by her fearless nature, always ready to dive right into any task that comes her way. After living through an assortment of different career choices from teacher to IBM executive, at the age of 55, Susan graduated from law school. As she'll tell you, she hasn't slowed down, even in retirement. Susan, let's just jump right in. Looking over where you've been and what you have done, uh, the natural question is, are you in the witness protection program? <laughs> Maybe, <laughs> but not to my knowledge. <laughs> okay. You've had some fascinating careers. I'll tell you what, start out, can you just kind of take us quickly through your your path from uh, being a teacher to ending up uh, as a lawyer? Uh, yeah, I probably can. Uh, I taught for six years and um, got a master's in education because I didn't think an English major would be hireable by anyone. My husband was getting his Ph.D. in mathematics at Berkeley, so I moved out there uh, and taught school for six years. And then we moved to Austin because that's where he finally got a job with a possibility of tenure. Uh, he taught at the University of Texas, and I... I uh, looked around for things to do, and John's brother had married a woman, and he and his wife had both graduated from Harvard MBA program. And I thought, huh, well, maybe I could go to UT and get an MBA. So I did. And when I got out, I looked for jobs in Austin only and finally found one with IBM. Um, I showed up for my interview in a very loud print red dress, as I recall. Uh, ooh, ooh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, not, not exactly typical interview attire, <laughs> but they hired me. And um, so I worked for IBM for 16 years, and I really enjoyed it. I became somewhat of a technical person. But finally, they promoted me beyond my uh, ability. Um, I tried for a year being an assistant to a very high executive at the IBM plant and decided it was not for me. But then I finally got an offer to retire um, uh, because they were downsizing. And I thought, oh, you know what, maybe I should do that because I have two little girls and I've never been a stay-at-home mom. And I've always had this angst about whether you should or shouldn't stay home. And so I'll try being a stay-at-home mom. And I took their retirement plan. At the same time, my husband uh, decided to do his own thing too. So uh, in our style, as he frequently joked that we were professional malcontents, he found that he could start his own little software company, which he did. And finally, because money was very tight, I started looking for a real full-time job and found one with a textbook publisher in Austin, um, Holt, Reinhardt, and Winston. And I ended up being an editor for English grammar textbooks. Just a wonderful job. But it was a contract job, and so every six months you were up for renewal. And I talked to a woman one day just on a chance conversation who was quite a bit younger than I, and she said that she was going to try to go to law school. 
And I thought, huh, my dad always wanted me to be a doctor or a lawyer. <laughs> Maybe I should think about it. Now, admittedly, I was 52 years old. <laughs> and it was kind of late to be starting. But I took the LSAT. I, in fact, I did really well on the LSAT. And I finally got into the University of Texas Law School and uh, graduated when I was 55. And that was the same year my older daughter graduated from high school. And then I started looking for a job as a lawyer, which turns out to be pretty tricky when you're 55. Not many people want to hire someone who's just out of law school at that age. But I got lucky. I found a startup company that wanted to hire me, but I told him at the very beginning, I said, if I find a real job, <laughs> I'm going to take it. And sure enough, I did find a real job. He was very nice about it. Um, the state of Texas had an opening at the Legislative Council, which is the support organization for the Texas state legislature. And so I was a lawyer there for 16 years. And that's so you were, you were in charge of drafting language that common people can't understand? Is that what your job kind of was? <laughs> <laughs> we made a big effort to write in plain English, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> Susan, I got I got another question. I want to go back to the very beginning. As you were in San Francisco during the late '60s, is that right? That is right. That is Ooh. right. Uh, it was a strange time. Yeah. Yeah, and, and a great music scene too. Yes, yes. There was a lot of music. Uh, we were so poor, we couldn't do anything except you know free stuff mostly. But. Um, we went to one concert, and it was so loud I couldn't stand it. So we didn't go to any other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it hurt my ears. You know, I don't know how people stand it, really. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> well, I like the music. They go ahead and lose their hearing, and that's how they stand it. I guess. I guess. Uh, yes, we were there at a very exciting time. Uh, but it was also, in spite of the unrest because of Vietnam, um, the protest didn't seem to me as violent, maybe, as they are now. It was a different kind of protest, and and it was all mixed up, you know. It was uh, free speech and free love and flower power. So it, yeah, it It's a good thing it was all free, so you could afford you it. You could afford it. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, that's just fascinating. I was going to ask you, Susan, what made you keep on veering from one direction to another, but it's obvious that you were pursuing not just a matter of geography and, and chance, but things that you really loved to do, and you found a way to do them. I'm wondering if there is still that kind of luck, if you're still riding that wave right now uh, in retirement. I am, in fact. It's funny that you say that, because when I was 12, I had this dream of being a concert pianist. I was pretty good for a you know, 10, 11, 12-year-old kid. And my teacher thought I was the best student she'd ever had. And she was just wonderful. Her name was Gladys Simon. And when I was about 12, my dad took me to hear Van Cliburn play. And I admitted to him that I wanted to be a concert pianist like Van Cliburn. And he said, oh, you'll never make it. <laughs> I didn't have this the drive to be perfect that he thought a pianist would need. You know, I didn't want to practice to make it perfect. I just wanted to make it sound good. 
Um, but I continued to play because I enjoyed it. I continued to play throughout my life. And here at Browse's Towers at Bio Manor, there are several other women who play the piano, and we've sort of started a series of little concerts. So I get to play concert piano, <laughs> and I get to accompany sing-alongs, and I'm really getting to be the pianist that I wanted to be when I was a kid. So yes, I'm enjoying it. So you need to find yourself a bar where you can entertain nightly. <laughs> As long as there's no smoking. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, there's the problem. Yeah. Well, you know what? That's an opportunity to pull out that flamboyant red dress. <laughs> Which I no longer have. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure IBM made you retire it. <laughs> Susan, uh, uh, you were at IBM during a very exciting time in IT, and that's the advent of the personal computer. Yeah, now, yeah, that sure. progression of a computer taking up a whole room to everybody having access to computing power. You got any observations on that? It was exciting. I don't think we knew what we had. Um, you may recall that when they first invented the computer, some famous man was quoted as saying, well, the world might need five of these. Who knows how many millions of computers are out there today, especially if you count all the little ones that are built into things like your cell phone, uh, which is probably more powerful than the first computers I sold. Uh, it looked like a little desk and had a little screen that would display six lines of text. And it was green. Um, you know, you had to be pretty strong to port that computer because it weighed about 55 pounds. <laughs> so... <laughs> Do you subscribe to that conspiracy theory about computers ganging up on us? Uh, not really. <laughs> no. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I'm, I'm not much into conspiracy theories. <laughs> um, Turning back yeah. to a bigger picture, to step back for a moment, and you had talked about how things have changed, and what do you think is the most important life lesson you've learned from everything that you have attempted and achieved? Well, I think it goes back to something. When I was first hired at IBM, a really nice gentleman was giving me some advice. And his advice was, be flexible, play to your strengths, and have fun. And honestly, that little bit of advice is sort of perfect, I think. You do have to be flexible. You have to be willing to try something different. And you can't be terrified I remember people thinking uh, when I went to law school at my advanced age that I was crazy, you know, that what if it didn't work out, what, you know, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, I just, that just never occurred to me that it wouldn't work out. I was an optimist. Uh, and, of course, I had opportunities that life doesn't present to very many people. I had a supportive family. Uh, we didn't have lots of money, but we had enough money and my daughters were excited that their mom was going to law school. You know, that was, that was, not everybody's mom goes back to law school. So it was exciting. It was fun. Um, and you can do other things. You just have to sort of jump out there and try them. Like what you've been hearing? 
How about sharing the joy with your friends? We can always use more listeners. All our episodes are available on our website, www.olddogspodcast.com. And there are a lot more episodes on the way, so stay tuned and keep howling at the moon.